Welcome to We Got Goals, a podcast by asweatlife.com on which we talk to high achievers about their goals. Today on the podcast, we have Luke Saunders and we'll also have another special guest because in this fifth season, we're still going to focus on talking to these high achievers about their goals, but we're going to do it with a twist. We're inviting listeners on just like you to get their questions answered in a segment we're calling Goals to Go. We asked our listeners to tell us what they were stuck on in their goals, and we did a little bit of matchmaking with our guests. So on today's episode, you'll meet Luke Saunders if you don't already know him. He is the founder and CEO of Farmer's Fridge, a company that was founded in 2013 to make it really, really easy to get wholesome, fresh food out of vending machines. Uh, And to make it even more fun, he's using data and machines and chefs to shake up food. We're here for it. Luke and I are going to talk about some of the big goals he's set and achieved and some of the goals he's going after in the future. Then we're going to bring on our guest, Chelsea Stegman, to get real life answers to a question she's working through as she pursues a goal. Luke, finally, let's talk. Luke Saunders, thank you so much for being here. Tell us, how did you find your way to creating a business that puts fresh food in vending machines? Yeah, well, a starting point is thanks for having me on. Appreciate you taking the time. Um, and then, yeah, how did I get into vending machines? It's it's not a, a totally linear path, I would say. Um, so it really started in college. I was a small business entrepreneur um, at a bike rental company. Really loved um, all the aspects of entrepreneurship. Um, and then when I graduated, I, had, I probably spent more time on the bike business than on my grades. And it was actually 2009. Um, and so it was pretty hard to get a job in addition to, um, to that. And so I took a job working at a family business manufacturing industrial lubricants in uh, and, and a really small company, three people, um, like in a warehouse in Long Island City, Queens. And I was doing everything, mixing grease, taking phone calls, um, packing up the, the deliveries to go out that day and um, really loved the experience, got me even more excited about entrepreneurship. And then my wife got into law school in Michigan. And so I was looking for a job I could do while in Michigan. Turns out if you are an expert in grease lubricants, you can get a job as a metal finishing salesman, which is um, think like a nonstick pan for industrial use. So my job was to go into factories and, and meet with engineering teams and explain to them how to use coatings to solve problems in the manufacturing industry. Um, and what was relevant about that was uh, that a lot of my clients were food manufacturers. So making everything from waffles to cereal to granola bars. Um, I covered a, a four-state territory, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. And so I was driving about 1,000 miles a week And most of the places I went, the only options were fast food, a gas station, or a grocery store. And so trying to figure out how to eat healthy in that environment um, was really tough. And the idea essentially for Farmer's Fridge emerged from driving all those miles, not having the fresh, healthy food that I wanted to eat, and thinking, why is that the problem? Like, why is this a problem? Why can I go back to my apartment? in Ann Arbor and get pretty much anything I want. And then when I'm in the middle of Ohio, it's really hard to get a fresh, healthy meal. And what I realized is the supply chain was really the challenge. And so the idea for Farmer's Fridge actually wasn't for a vending machine. It was how do I uh, connect directly with my customers, have a model that's not a restaurant and really leverages that centralized production 
and a new distribution model to make change in a way that allows people to eat healthier uh, in a more convenient way and a more affordable way. So it's kind of backed into the problem through all those different experiences. So you were solving your own problem, but you ended up solving a lot of different people's problems too, because you're serving a lot of folks. How many vending machines are out in the wild today? Yeah, so we have over 400 machines. Um, We served uh, multiple millions of meals last year, even in the middle of the pandemic. Um, And so, yeah, it it was something when I started, I was certainly looking at it as like, this is my problem. A lot of people must have this problem. Um, And it feels like a big opportunity, but I never really had, uh, was fully in touch with like how widespread it was until I started getting going. And I was like, oh, we, this would work in hospitals and this would work in airports and this would work in universities. And you just, you have that moment a lot more than you think. And you tend to default to whatever the easiest, most affordable option is. Um, and so it turns out like if, if what I, a question I love to ask people is um, sort of like, how happy are you with the meals that you've eaten over the last few days? Like as a percentage, what percentage of those meals would you say you were happy that you ate? And it's surprisingly low. Like you, the average is probably 50%. You always get a couple of people that are like, I'm hundred percent satisfied. You get a few people that are like 0% satisfied, but to think about something that you choose to do three times a day and only being happy about it 50% of the time, that's a much bigger opportunity than I had realized. That's a, a super interesting metric. And speaking of the data, I know the first time you and I spoke, Luke, it was a few years ago and you were, I, I think, in the middle of raising money and you were sharing all of these super interesting data points with us, which goes to show how much you can do with the data. Not only do you know when food is fresh versus bad um, based on your vending machine data, you also saw the impacts of the pandemic coming a little bit before others with some of your data. Can you speak to the power of the data and some of those points? Yeah. I mean, I I think um, from the very beginning, the thesis was for the first time really in history, we could connect directly with our customers without actually ever meeting them in person. So, you know, this is, think about, you know, 2012, 2013 is when I got started, but really the idea was forming 2009, 2010, 2011. And so social media is fairly new. Like the idea that you could connect with people digitally at that level of granularity is fairly new. Um, And so that was really the thesis going in was like, if we could collect all that information, connect directly with people, we could actually leverage it to make a better experience. And to your point, like we, because of that, we've integrated from top to bottom. So we actually make the food, we deliver the food, and we control the POS system. That's the fridge where you go and you buy the food. And so what we were seeing is places like the airports were losing like 20% of our traffic year over year in like late February. And so it was just, you could tell that people were already starting to get nervous, travel less, like that would normally be ramping up towards the busy season. And so like you're getting spring breakers and more business travel as the weather gets better. Um, So yeah, we started seeing it at the airports. We actually noticed in, in the downtown markets, we were doing a little bit better. And our theory there was people were actually avoiding going into restaurants. So they were looking for something that was like contactless and quick and could minimize how much exposure they could get. Um, And then obviously within like a week, 
we got the same data that everybody else did when the shelter in place happened. But I think leading up to it, we were better prepared because we could see those shifts happening in places like the airports and office buildings. And before we talk about your goals, um, one more one more sort of interesting point about the pandemic and shifts you made as a business. You started serving medical professionals and hospitals in a in a really big way. Can you talk about that? Yeah, um, it was actually like when this first happened is a good example of like getting the data ahead of time, but not necessarily in like through the fridges themselves. Um, through our relationships with the hospitals, so about twenty percent of our fridges were in hospitals. Before this happened, we were in every major hospital in New York, New Jersey, Chicago. um, And we actually started getting letters from our clients saying that all non-essential businesses would not be allowed into the hospital. And this is like as early as early February. And our initial reaction was like, oh my gosh, like we might have to shut down 20% of our business because these hospitals are going to not let anybody in. So we called them up and they actually said, no, you are the essential business. (laughs) Like you're feeding people. That's essential to us operating the hospital. So you guys are going to be one of the essential businesses that we actually need you more than we need you to before. Um, And so when we heard that, that was kind of um, prompted us to say to the sales team, like, listen, just make sure clients know whatever they need. We're here. We can do something. We'll figure it out. We want to support them. And sure enough, within a month, they were reaching out because they were having to close their cafeterias. To, they were moving towards grab-and-go food. They wanted to disperse it throughout the hospital so people weren't congregating. Um, and that really came about because of those relationships. And so what was interesting is we were supporting hospitals before this happened. Because of that, we were able to support them even more um, once things... And we're still doing it. So we still have fridges in the hospitals. It's Most of our business right now is either in airports or hospitals. It's wild. And I also read somewhere that you adjusted some pricing too. Yeah, we, we did do a healthy code um, for, for the peaks in different cities. Um, and that just allowed people to get a discount. We knew they were going to be having a rough time. Um, and so we thought it was a good way to activate customers, show them that we cared. Um, and the other thing is we were able to raise over half a million dollars and donate half a million dollars worth of food to frontline workers and communities that need in need during the shelter in place. Um, so that was another way that we tried to contribute. It wasn't just selling people food, but actually giving it away. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's jump into your goals. I could talk about the pandemic and how you shifted all day. So I must move on. <laughs> Tell us about a big goal you set and accomplished in the past and why was it important to you? Um, so, I mean, obviously a big goal was, was launching Farmer's Fridge. <laughs> uh, so that's probably the biggest uh, goal of my life um, was just getting a business off the ground. Um, and, and so, and then every, every couple months or every week, there's new goals that I set that are incremental um, or support the, the success. So um, I think there's two, I have like two different types of goals. So maybe starting there. So with Farmer's Fridge, there was, there's always the short-term goal and then the aspirational goal. And so the aspirational goal for Farmer's Fridge was to solve this uh, health, access to healthy food problem that I was describing based on my time on the road. Um, and that's always been the North Star. Like how do you create a business model that's gonna solve that problem um, and really make people better off? And then there's like, okay, what do I need to do right now to get closer to that aspirational goal? And so at the beginning that was launch the vending machine. And it really, for me, was, uh, okay, what, what does that look like? What, is, what does success look like at launch? 
And what are all the elements that I want to have ready and then make a list and sort of go down the list and execute. Um, and more or less, I try to have one big goal like that at a time. So it's just the only thing I'm focused on. Um, and I found for me, at least that's the most effective way. As soon as I start to get into multiple goals, um, it's really hard unless those things ladder directly to that one big goal. So um, the biggest one I've ever had was to get a business launched. Um, and that, that happened in, in October, 2013. And then since then it's, it's all incremental to that aspirational goal. I, I love hearing how people think about goals. I think it's really interesting because it tells you a lot about kind of who they are as a person. It sounds like you've got focus and drive um, and discipline sort of pushing you. Is that something you've always had or is that something you've had to work on? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about this, like, as we were getting ready for the interview and I would say I'm like, um, extremely disciplined about the one goal. So once I set that one thing, that's why I just kind of stick to one big goal and then everything either has to support that or it doesn't get done. And so for me, like, I'm not very disciplined in like my everyday routine or things like that. But in terms of that one goal, like if it doesn't fit with what I'm trying to accomplish, I won't do it. <laughs> so it's like, as a very small example, like even the shelves that are behind me, like for months they were empty because it wasn't important. And so like, I will pretty ruthlessly prioritize anything that's not essential, um, just doesn't happen. And so I wouldn't describe myself as like the most disciplined in my everyday routine. But once I have that set, thing I'm trying to accomplish. I'm very disciplined about focusing on just that one thing, almost to the detriment of anything else. I, I'm smiling along and laughing uh, for two reasons. One, for the listeners at home, um, the shelves behind him are, are very well put together. Got books. It looks like a decorator, honestly, did it, and photos of his family, um, as well as a terrarium. Yeah, very that was actually a, a gift uh, someone gave to my wife. I was like, that looks nice. I'm going to put it here because she didn't want it. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Mine now. Uh, and, the, and the other reason is I so can identify with uh, losing focus on all those other, not losing focus, but just not focusing on all those other things. Because when you, when you kind of have that one goal, it makes everything else feel less important. Um, I'm, I'm curious though, it sounds like entrepreneurship's in your blood. Um, where, did you always know that you wanted to start a business? Was the bike store the first business or were there some childhood things happening too? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had the childhood, uh, like sort of stories of like, I, I remember the earliest one is my mom, uh, used to always plant a garden every summer and she would have extra plants and I would take those around town and try to sell the plants out of the back of the wagon. Um, and like any chance I got would do a lemonade stand. So like I was always very commercial, um, and had a lot of energy for those kinds of things. I think a big part of it was there was a lot of entrepreneurship in my family. So like, various, you know, this distant cousin or uncle. Um, and even my dad was a, uh, an entrepreneur with his brothers. They had a, um, a heating and cooling distribution company. And so I just was always exposed to it. I felt like it was something that was not this kind of mystical off in the distance thing. It was this very practical, like I remember filling out my college application. I had never thought about entrepreneurship at all. And I asked my dad, I said, dad, they want, to, they want to know what your profession is. And he said, well, you write down entrepreneur. And I was like, what? You can't, like, that can't be a profession. And so I think I was so uh, surrounded by it that I didn't really internalize it as a, as a thing. Um, 
And that to me is, is probably um, one of the things I'm most grateful for. It's just like, I didn't have to get over that initial hurdle, but I don't think I had any like special entrepreneurial DNA. It was just something that was in the ether. And so I was much more comfortable with that ambiguity and those, those ideas. I love that you were selling plants because you're still kind of selling plants. Yeah, it was definitely like, it was very appropriate. And I think um, it relates because the reason my mom planted a garden and did all that stuff is because she cared about what we ate and, you know, wanted it. Like, it was very in line with like what I care about today, for sure. Amazing. Well, well, let's talk about what you're focusing on in the future. What's that next kind of big goal you've got your site set on and maybe it's a little bit scary and how do you plan to get there? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our biggest goal right now is 2021. We're hopefully coming out of like COVID crisis mode and looking at the world, whatever the, the new normal is, is emerging in 2021. And so we're really just trying to take advantage of that shift um, and get our momentum coming out of um, the height of the pandemic, hopefully. So it's it's essentially from 2019 to 2020, um, we, we'd had 100% year-on-year growth every year until 2020. And so our goal for this year is to get back to that 100% year-on-year growth over the next 12 months. Um, and I think that's going to be pretty ambitious. So that that's the number one focus. Um, and so the sub-goal of that is really driving um, discipline around like what we're working on, what we're not working on as an organization. And so I think for me, I always had that natural ability to say, what's the most important thing? We're going to focus on that. I'm not going to do anything else, but scaling that across an organization, especially one as complicated as ours, um, is challenging to say the least. And so that really is where my energy is right now. It's like, how do I create an organizational framework to make that reality is the only way we get back to that growth curve. That's really interesting to think about trying to scale a mindset across a vertical food business because uh, you have so many pieces involved in it and now you even have delivery. Exactly. So we have we have uh, three channel three main channels of business. So we have uh, the the fridge business which is our core business. We have the direct to, to consumer delivery business. We have the wholesale channel where we sell food directly to a retailer or a food service company. Um, and then we have multiple markets. So we have to organize. And then within our business, to your point, we have production, distribution, supply chain, technology, consumer. So getting all those pieces lined up is, is definitely pretty challenging. Wow. And so before we, we move on to talk to Chelsea on our goals to go segment, Luke, is there anything else, any big piece of advice you've ever gotten about goals and goal setting that you want our listeners to know? Um, I, I think the thing that is most helpful is to just document it, like write it down. Like this is the thing I'm trying to accomplish and by when. And then I generally, I tend to be pretty obsessive. So like once I have something in mind, I'm thinking about it all the time. But I think just getting in the habit of like picking the thing, setting the date, and just making that the first thing you think about when you get out of bed, the last thing you think about when you go to sleep, um, it just get obsessed with whatever that goal is. And I, I think maybe my one piece of advice is if you're not obsessed with that goal, then let it go. Like pick a new one because I, I think I've never gotten anything done. Like I've set goals before and completely failed. And every time it's because I, it wasn't actually important to me. So I think if you're really struggling with a goal, ask yourself, like, is this actually the most important thing I need to be working on? And don't beat yourself up. Just move on. Like, 
pick something else. I like that advice of just picking yourself up and moving on. And, and I think it takes a lot of maturity to have that level of introspection too. Like, well, why didn't I achieve this? Cause I didn't care. Right. Yeah. Like every, I'm like, Oh, I'd love, I'd love to lose a few pounds and it just doesn't happen. And you're like, well, I guess that's not as important as I want it to be in theory. <laughs> and so like when it is, it'll get done. And I find, I find that the things that are, do get pushed off end up not being the most important things. And so, Yeah. Well, that brings us actually to uh, our goals to go segment. Before we we toss it over to Chelsea and you to have a chat, we're going to be talking to Chelsea Stegman about her big goal uh, and kind of a hurdle she's overcoming. She's honing in on a niche. Um, So Luke, I'm curious, before we talk to Chelsea, how did you find your niche and your customer at Farmer's Fridge and was it hard? Yeah. Um, so I, this is such an awesome question because I, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time and they're not necessarily thinking about this early enough in the process. Like really, who are your customers and why do you have a right to win is how I think about the niche. So getting really disciplined about that, I think, is step one to being successful. So great job. Um, I, I, I would back up a little bit. I think in the, in the grease business that I started in or the bike rental company, those were really obvious niches and that made those businesses very uh, enjoyable and like they, they would be a certain size. And I just, I loved that aspect of those small businesses gave me a chance to pressure test what that meant. So for example, in the grease business, we had one product, we sold it to a very specific set of engineers. We were never going to compete with ExxonMobil. That was obvious. Like we were half a million dollars. They're hundreds of billions or whatever they are. So um, it made it really easy. I think with Farmer's Fridge, it was much more challenging because the idea is so ambitious. It's like, we're going to try to replace all of the food that you eat with healthy options. And so um, I don't know that we have like a niche business. I think we're kind of the opposite. It's like, how do we have a, a mass market business? And the difference to me is if you can, the way you know the difference is where do you fit on the economics of your business. So if you're going to go after an established business model, like you're going to open a restaurant, you definitely want to be in a niche. If you're going to create a completely new industry, then it's okay to be like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And so I I kind of um, look at it that way. And and within that are certainly our niches, like healthy food that's affordable and accessible to people um, is like the value proposition to customers. But I, I push back a little bit on the niche for farmer's fridge, just because we're going after something so ambitious. Got that big North star. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for a goal. So don't be upset. So Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Stegman, welcome to the podcast. You are a registered dietitian. Tell us a little bit about what you've built so far um, before you and Luke dive in. Yeah. Um, so I just wanted to dive into, first of all, my background, because um, it kind of shows why I'm having trouble niching a little bit. Um, So I've been a dietitian for about five years, mostly worked in health club settings. Um, I'd say most of us started off clinical. I moved towards the health club setting. Um, But that being said, we get a little bit of everything during that. Um, So my first job, I was a personal trainer, also a dietitian, um, worked with diabetes, sports nutrition. I did VO2 testing. I did metabolic testing. Um, I did a lot of like lab testing interpretation. So I was spread pretty thin. I was in charge of the whole supplement business at my club. Um, so I was doing a lot. Um, so I learned a ton. I learned a ton of different things, a lot of different topics. 
Um, and then I moved to Chicago and it was kind of the same thing. I was doing a little bit of everything, but more just nutrition. Um, we did take insurance. So it was more medical nutrition therapy. Um, so going out of that, um, going into my own business, I just realized that I needed to niche down and I need to do that quickly. Um, cause it is a pretty, um, saturated market. I should say health coaching in general. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of my background, but I just stopped working with a business coach. I did a whole program and everything, and I just love to get just different opinions with all of this. Um, so I had a big question for niching, but just how do you clarify um, what do you look for in like an ideal client avatar, um, a problem that you need to solve? So I just need a lot of your help with that. Got it. Yeah, I mean, I would say just as a starting point, it's pretty normal at the early stage to just kind of explore different stuff and find it. Like I wouldn't, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. So like sometimes it's very, very obvious and um, you can, you can get it going. Other times you're kind of exploring that. So, so the farmer's fridge equivalent was trying to figure out where to put the fridges. Like it wasn't clear where we would be most successful. So we tried a lot of different things. And then once we had some places that worked, we stopped doing everything else and just focused on that. So I, I think um, just given how broad it is and how saturated the market, I wouldn't be surprised if a little bit of it is trial and error and you have to be comfortable with that. And, and once you can, I like, once you have that trial and error and you identify like, Oh, this is where I'm getting the most momentum. Then, then letting go of all of the other things is actually the hard part. <laughs> So like in that kind of environment where you're exploring to find your niche, you just, you need to be willing to let go of, like we literally cut revenue and that was really hard to do at the time. Cause we just said, you know what, those things are good. They're bringing money right now, but they're not our scalable channels. And so we got to let it go. So I would imagine just who knows, but predict predicting that'll probably be your hardest part is if you're, you have that really broad base, you're going to get a lot of opportunity and have a lot of different areas you could go run after um, but you'll find where you have the momentum and then need to let go of things. But in, I'm curious, um, in terms of finding your niche, like where do you see, what's your revenue model? Like, how are you, what, did, what are you seeing as the way that you're going to make money? Um, so I'm all one-on-one -on -one coaching right now. Um, so the plan is for March to launch a group, a group program, but right now strictly one-on-one. -on -one. Um, okay. But I am doing a lot more with programming. So just streamlining that. Um, so with that, that can definitely help with just having an ideal client. So got it. And, and do you have like a personal, uh, health journey that, that you find is like translatable to, to specific types of people? Um, so, so I didn't really get into what my niche kind of is right now. Um, but I really want to help with burnout, okay. um, adrenal health, blood sugar stabilization. They all kind of go together. Okay. Um, but that's something that I've seen with a lot of people is people are like on and they're off and go and stop. And it's very extreme. Um, yep. And for my five years in a health club setting, that's probably the biggest problem that I've seen. Um, so with that, and I've kind of struggled with that too. I'm a very diehard type of person. So if I didn't have this health knowledge, I would probably do the same thing, honestly. Um, so learned along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that feels like a really, uh, first of all, great timing. Cause you're dealing with people probably historic level, high burnout based yeah. on everything that's going on. Um, and it feels like you, you have a passion for that and you already know. So, so if that is your niche, why are you still looking or what's the question? 
I'm not, I'd say I'm probably at that point where I just need to let go exactly what you're saying, um, which is a little bit trickier just to say no to some people. Um, but I think I just need to commit to it and run with it type of thing. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things I've learned about like risk management in, in entrepreneurship is there's a lot of times where like you have to basically let go of something else to grab the next vine. It's called because I'm not sure if you've heard that expression before, but like let go of the vine. And so like, you can't, you can't get to the next step without letting go of the last thing. Um, Mm -hmm. That's why I kind of, I went there as a a solution. So I would say it's hard because you, you have the known risk of the things you're letting go of and the unknown benefit of the things you don't have yet. But generally, I, I can't think of a single time personally that I've let go of those things and moved to the next step and not been happy about it. Because, you know, you're, you're still going to be able to generate those same opportunities just now with more focus. Yeah, I would agree. Definitely. And I feel like 2020 was all discovery and trial and error. So now it's, it's time. Yeah. Um, cool. So I had one other question. So it is my first year. So I wanted to go over just ways to seek help what to invest my money in, um, what you've done. Um, so with that masterminds, I feel like still critical thinking is a good way to just stand out in your field. So that's a good way is just to um, talk to other people out there, basically. Mindset coaches is another thing that's pretty common right now. I just invested in a business coach and then design, aesthetics, just all of that out there. Yep. Yeah, so I, I think... I, just backing up for a second, like if you're if your niche is burnout, let's say, mm-hmm. and your your model is going to be one on one and group coaching, is that the idea? Like a, a hybrid of both. Mm-hmm. And so, what's what's like the one thing that you feel like would be your milestone? Like, let's say this is the beginning of the year. You're like, this year, if I if I look at my business, what I will feel successful is what? Like, how many clients you have? Is it you know, the, the profit margin, what are you looking to is like your, your metric for success? I would say how many clients I have. Okay. So you have like a set goal for how many clients you want to have yep. and, and how many clients is that? Um, so that's, well, it's client hours right now. So I kind of have to figure that out, but it's 25 per hour, just face to face with people. It's 25 client hours. Yeah. So face to face. So that could be group or one-on-one. Okay. And that's per week, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Right. So what's the thing that's most critical to getting that done? Is it like having, is it your customer acquisition model? Is it your like curriculum? Like what, what gets you to that 25 hours a week? Um, so I'm working with a sales funnel. Um, so I would say 1000% right now, just getting myself out there. Okay. Um, whether it be like blog articles, going on podcasts, anything like that. But right now it's past clients, people I know, referrals, that's pretty much it. So it's no one just kind of out of the blue through marketing. So got it. that should be my focus this year. Yeah. So, I mean, if I were picking for you, I would say like, that's your number one, like how, like your customer acquisition model, uh-huh. so whether that's marketing um, or like investing your time in in cross promoting or getting like figuring out like where your customers are and how to communicate your value proposition to them to me feels like the most important thing you could accomplish. If if you're going from, you know, this word of mouth, like I would spend time really understanding what what do your best clients look like? What do they like about working with you? And then finding out like translating that into a 
concise story that you can tell other people that look like them. And that might answer the question about specific things you need to spend money on. Uh Like one of the things um, early on at Farmer's Fridge is we, we had a completely different brand look and feel. And I'm really glad we didn't spend a lot of money up front on it because what ended up happening is we, once we had some customers, we could kind of ask them what they thought, like what was resonating, what wasn't resonating and do that exercise and then invest in the design and the brand. But again, you might hear from people like, oh, your, your message is really clear. It's your design that we don't really isn't resonate and we don't understand. So then, you know, that's where you need to invest. Mm-hmm. But I would just start with really you understanding that, that core customer profile and the story you're, you're telling to get more people like them. Um, and if you needed to invest in someone to help you do that, there are probably people out there that can help. Okay, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, that answered at least two of my questions. So thank and you just, so much. Just curiosity, how much, what size investment are you talking about making? What size investment? I still have to figure that all out. (laughs) Um, So right now, just invested in a business coach, finished that. Now I'm redoing my website and branding. Um, So beyond that, um, I'm still figuring everything out. Um, I want to save as much money as possible. So Okay. Yeah, great. Also, it's my first year. So I know investing yourself is crucial too. So just weighing both of those. Yeah. And I think you're thinking about it the right way. Like for me, it's always been talking to customers to figure out what they want Uh and then prioritizing those investments that help me make the experience more valuable to my customers or attract more people like that or investing in myself or my team. So those are like, you're already doing the right stuff. So I would say just follow like your intuition and what you see when, when that's happening. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. The first year is tough, but I feel like I'm on the right track. (laughs) Yeah, the first year I like I've blacked that all out. So uh-huh. I, I, <laughs> I will someday. Even, even now, seven years in, I think sometimes like the whole first three or four years actually feels like a blur. And I just I think you it's really hard because you're that first year you're not even getting the traction and stuff yet. That doesn't happen until two, three, four years in sometimes. Okay. Well, this has been our very first goals to go segment. I have been smiling and nodding along because it's been incredible to listen to this great advice. Chelsea, before we move on to our listener questions, where can people find you? Um, so I'm on Instagram at Chelsea Stegman RD. And also my website is ChelseaStegmanRD.com. So they can find me there. Thank you for joining us, Chelsea. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Chelsea. All right, let's move on. We got a couple of listener questions for you, Luke. I'm pretty excited about this, including a celebrity cameo. Sarah Spain from ESPN and lots of other places had a big question for you about your menu. Uh, She's been ordering farmer's fridge delivery, and she wanted to know, how do you decide what's vegetarian? And are you ever going to allow protein swaps? Great question. Um, So I think it's evolved over the years is the short answer. Um, so like when I started actually hundred percent of the menu is vegetarian and you could only add uh, a protein. So there was no combination, uh, dishes and we sold chicken, we sold tofu. We actually had a, a, a tuna. Um, and over the years we've tried like shrimp as another add on option. Um, so that was the initial starting point. And what we found over the years is there's a balance where, you know, customers don't necessarily want to pay for the, essentially the flexibility of the add-on creates more cost. So we can save like, let's say 50 cents by combining them together. 
And all of a sudden it's not a vegetarian dish, but it's cheaper for the people who want the meat. And so that's actually the challenge that we face is trying to figure out like where does quality to value against consumer preferences come in. Um, and so what we've started to do is a lot more uh, consumer insights research. So we actually have a director of consumer insights on our team and she looks at like, okay, how many vegetarians do we actually have out there in, in our customer base? Um, how many options do we have? How often are they purchasing those options? Um, and try to look at it from a very data-driven perspective. So a good example would be um, our tofu, which we sell. Um, we had been selling in the fridges up until probably a few months before the pandemic. And what we found is that, yes, a lot of um, like the people who are buying them are obviously uh, vegetarian or don't want protein, but they were actually uh, not very good customers. <laughs> and so we were um, in a situation where we're actually like losing money on that item and not having it be paid back in the form like a lost leader. And so we decided to discontinue it um, versus other dishes where um, we find that, that the core element of loyalty is that it's vegetarian. And so like for all the vegetarians out there, like if you eat, we will notice if you're eating it and you're eating it often and we'll keep it and we'll do more dishes like that. But it's very data driven in the sense that like we, we kind of go with where the, the product velocity is telling us to go and where the consumer insights research is telling us to go. And we find that there are just a lot more people that want meat in their dish than there are vegetarians, even though personally, like I, I like to eat most of my meals without meat. Sarah, there you go. There's your answer. Um, just like Jimmy Neutron said, never argue with the data. Second question came from an anonymous ambassador. She wanted to know, are you hiring? <laughs> um, we are, we have, uh, the jobs are posted on our website. So if you see them up there, please apply. Um, most of the roles right now are engineering focused. So that's really where we're continuing to invest this year, um, in growing our engineering design product, um, making sure that those features are there and that the data that we have is, is translated into things that make the consumer experience better. Excellent. Okay. Might be the last question. We'll see how long it takes you. Um, this question comes from Sarah. She wanted to know, what is it like a different Sarah? What is it like having your team review you and would you recommend it for other leaders? Yeah. Um, I thought it was awesome. I, this was actually like the first time I've written about a 360 review, but I had done it previously. Um, and I, I think especially as a leader, this is a critical thing to do. Um, most people will not tell you what they really think all the time. Um, and so it's really important to give them a safe space to share that information. I think one of the biggest adjustments for me has been that sort of like positional authority that you get at, in a leadership position as a CEO. And so having that feedback is essential. I strongly recommend it. And it, of course it's nerve wracking because you, you want to make sure, you know, you, you want everyone to, think you're a good leader, but at the end of the day, if you don't collect the feedback, you can't get better. And so you're almost certainly not going to be as good a leader without it. And, and so this question is referencing an article that you wrote in Forbes. Is that right, Luke? Uh, Fast Company. Fast Company. Yes. Just, okay. as, just as excellent. Uh, <laughs> and in that article, Luke described having his team review him and what he learned. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a great article. It's out there. It's just Google Fast Co. Farmer's Fridge. Um, but yeah, I would strongly recommend a 360 review for anyone and even within the team. And we'll put that in the show notes too. Okay, last, last question, I swear. I don't know if you can tell us. This came from Kelly. She wants to know your cook, your chickpea cookie dough recipe. Can you share it? 
<laughs> sure. We, I, I actually will have to go back into the archives. Um, right now we're doing a cookie dough bites. Um, that's a little bit different, but we can pull it up for you. We'll share it in a link uh, when you share this podcast. That's so exciting. We'll put that in the in the show notes. I used to order that chickpea cookie dough. And when I worked at a, a startup in Chicago called Avant, they're bigger now. But um, when I worked there, we would get the chickpea cookie dough in the office. Yeah, I too. love that. The whole idea was to have a dish that was um, sort of decadent and got people in into the fridge to try it. Um, so it's great. Oh, coming your way, chickpea cookie dough. Um, well, Luke, this has been an incredible episode of We Got Goals. I really enjoyed the new format. I loved having you here. Thank you for joining us, Luke. Chelsea, thanks for the fantastic question. And thanks, listener, for getting involved in this week's episode. Let us know what you thought of the updated format. If you have a question that you want to ask an expert, we'll bring one on. Uh, and this has been another episode of We Got Goals, another thing that's better with friends. Yeah, I said I'll be on the road. I'll be back. I'm just reaching for so don't be upset when I'm not around Just know I'll be back, so no need to frown